Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course... Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lambert. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. I'm Heather Ellis, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Coming up on today's episode, we have Heather Ellis, who has a new book out called Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa. We have a great story from that book. And as well, I have a review for you from Green Chili Adventure Gear's Uprising Luggage System. My name's Jim Martin. Stay with us. You know, anytime the weather gets cool, you get the transition from winter to summer, summer to winter, uh, spring and fall, that sort of thing. You want to think about heated clothing. Heated clothing does a ton. And AeroStitch has a full line of heated clothing. They've got fleeces. They've got everything you need to ride in the wintertime. As a matter of fact, they've even got a blog, which they did last year when they were riding the zero electric motorcycle all winter and talking about their challenges with the bike and how they ride in the winter. I mean, if you're riding in the winter, you know how to ride in the cold and it's important to stay warm. Warm keeps you alert and it keeps you safe. So not only think of the AeroStitch gear on the outside, but also think of AeroStitch for the heated gear on the inside or the fleeces, etc. that you need to keep yourself warm. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, that forward slash ARR is going to get you 10% off your order. If you're a repeat customer, it's going to get you free shipping and it's going to let them know, of course, that you're coming from Adventure Rider Radio. Anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It 
at daylight or even before daylight, I woke up and packed my bike very silently, pushed it out to the front and left. And as I was um, pushing it out, all these people, Takana, were milling around me and started talking about how I was going to leave because Sharif had basically turned them all against me that I owed him and I wasn't paying him. But they, of course, didn't know the full story. And so I just got on my bike and opened the throttle and I was out of there. My name's Heather Ellis. I'm from Hillsville near Melbourne in Australia, and I'm the author of Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa. You've written the book called Ubuntu, which we're going to talk about today. I understand that you started out working on a farm. Yeah, I grew up for a number of years in uh, the outback, uh, Australia's outback, on a sheep station. It was a 700-square-mile uh, sheep station uh, near a place called Cooper Pedy. And uh, we were there for about three years. My mother and father were mining opal, and my brother and I were based on my uncle and aunt's sheep station while they were mining at Cooper Pedy. So we uh, had a school on the station and we would we were riding little Honda Z50s and we would park our little motorcycles at the school and during our lunch break, when normally kids are playing tiggy, we would be riding our motorcycles around the home paddock, which is about a 10-acre paddock, and we would also muster sheep on the weekends And all these riding conditions were the same riding conditions that I came across 20 years later when I travelled through Africa. The book you've written, Ubuntu, that's just come out this year, 2016, it's about a trip that you took between 1993 and 95, um, and you went to Africa. First of all, what made you take that trip? Well... I was um, still working at the uranium mine. That I worked, actually worked at that mine for a good part of my 20s. There was a, a time I went backpacking to Europe for a couple of years. So I came back to the mine because I liked living there and it was working in a mining industry in Australia and making really quite good money. So, uh, But I sort of got a great job as a radiation safety technician. And um, But I was still restless. I was like, you know, this is my the best years of my life. I've spent in this isolated town of 3,000 people and, you know, life, I felt like life was passing me by and I craved to, to for more, you know, to, to like for adventure and, and to get more out of my life. And then I was at a backyard barbecue with some friends one Sunday afternoon and I just blurted out, you know, wouldn't it be great to ride a motorcycle across Africa? And as soon as I said it, I knew I'd do it. it I sort of just, I sort of say to people, if you come up with an idea and it just grips you, it grips you, your very core, um, you know that that is the right idea. It might be, you know, starting a business or changing a career. Uh, my idea was to ride a motorcycle through Africa and, and for some reason I just knew this was, you know, what was I was meant to do and nothing would stop me. And, and living in a small mining town, I had a lot of people um, doubting me and putting me down and saying you can't do it and it was too dangerous and in Australia, we have uh, a thing called, you know, a saying um, called the tall poppy syndrome. And it's where people put you down if you're trying to, you know, better yourself and 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 achieve some great impossible feat. 
And this is what I was trying to do. But even, you know, despite all of that, I um, I didn't give up. You know, I, I was so uh, driven and possessed by, by doing this trip. And this was before the internet. Like there was no, you know, Horizons Unlimited and blogs and websites and magazines and, you know, Adventure Rider Radio. There was nothing like that to give you ideas and advice about travelling overland. Um but as soon as I came up with the idea, um, a friend of mine gave me a dog-eared copy of Ted Simon's Jupiter's Travels. So I read that to cover to cover and, and again and continued writing, reading it. And um, I bought myself a Michelin map of Africa. And then um, a couple of weeks later, a German motorcycle traveller um, turned up by chance on my doorstep and he had just travelled through Africa so he was a wealth of information and advice about, you know, what to take and where to go and what to watch out for and, and how basically to travel Africa on your own. Um, and then also when I um, came up with the bike I wanted to buy, because I asked a few of my friends, I said, what bike should I travel Africa on? And they said, oh, go on the Yamaha TT600. Nothing beats that. And so when I bought the bike, right there on the shop floor was a set of custom-made thick leather panniers and a frame that fitted my bike just with a few minor adjustments and that had been custom made by um, a Swiss guy who had just finished his motorcycle tour around Australia and he sold his bike and all his gear to this Yamaha uh, motorcycle shop in Darwin. So from the very beginning everything fell into place. It was like this was meant to happen and this is where um, from the very beginning I, I developed this uh sense of uh, spirituality, if you could call it that, about um, my journey. You know, it was not just the journey through Africa, but it was also that search for meaning, you know, that's that, that awakening to, to some, uh, you know, a spirituality in my life. And because of all these coincidences and chance encounters that were falling into place for me, it was sort of like, you know, lighting my path and the way I should go. And it reassured me that I was on track, that that was what I meant was meant to do. Why Africa to begin with? What was your fascination with that? I, that, that was something that was laying dormant in my subconscious from, uh, from my um, childhood because I started, I was always a great reader. I love reading. And I never really looked at myself as a writer until I travelled Africa and wrote diaries. But I read um, all of Wilbur Smith by the time I was like 13. And another book I read was called Something of Value by Robert Roark. It's actually a very bloodthirsty account of the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. But the, his descriptions of Africa and the dialogue and the people and the way he brought everybody to life, I just really fell in love with Africa at that time. But I never thought of travelling Africa. That that was not, not something that was in was a plan. I, I really didn't think that I was, you know, um, capable at that early, you know, as, as a young woman when I left school. And it wasn't until I came up with the idea, and that was when I was 27, that yes, I could do this, you know, and I had the experience of, of being, of riding motorcycles. I was a good motorcycle rider, but I wasn't, I'd never traveled on a bike and I really didn't know anything about fixing a motorcycle. I had no mechanical knowledge because 
my dad would fix my bikes and my brother would fix my bike and then it was like boyfriends after that. So that really didn't give me a lot of confidence that that whole thing about not, you know, what happens when the bike breaks down? How do I fix it? How do you plan? How do you prepare? How do you plan for your bike to get over there and deal with carnets you may, may need, all that stuff? How do you do that in advance? Well, the, the German traveler was the one who, like, I didn't know anything about having a carnet de passage. You know, he was the one who told me about that. Um, he was the one who suggested going on the cargo ship um, from Fremantle to Durban. I didn't even, you know, I just thought, well, how am I going to get my bike there? That wasn't sort of... I didn't know any of that. And as I was saying before, there was no, you know, it's not like who get onto Google. Um, and, um, you know, Ted Simon's book gave me quite a bit of information about sort of what to pack, you know, just by reading his story. And, and then it was about just thinking about it, like what will I need here? But I, I packed all sorts of things that weren't really necessary, like I carried a spade, you know, one of those fold-down mm-hmm. spades. I, I had a thing like a candle lamp. Um, I had a hammock. <laughs> and I was very much into um, scuba diving at that time. So I packed, um, you know, scuba fins and a mask and snorkel because I had read that there's all this magnificent, um, you know, snorkeling off the Kenyan coast and, and off, um, you know, like Mozambique and places like that, although I didn't sort of go there at the time. And also South Africa, there's um, coral reefs that you can snorkel on. So all these unnecessary things that slowly as you travel and you think like, I'm not carrying all this weight on my bike anymore. So I started kind of, you know, ditching things that weren't absolutely necessary. Um, I also carried far too many spare parts for the bike that I never used. Um, you know, I had um, sponsorship from Shibaki and they gave me um, four motorcycle chains and uh, Yamaha gave me a whole contingent of um, spare parts and I did use things like sprockets and um, and I did use, of course, the chains, but, um, you know, I had two full sets of spokes for the wheels. I never needed those. <laughs> So, so it's just you don't know at the time. You sort of think, oh, you know, what could go wrong? And I was also talking to friends and saying, well, what, what do you think I should take? Um, because, again, there was nothing I could read. So, And you're right. Like nowadays, it's so easy to prepare in a way, really. And although uh, I have to tell you that everything I know of talking to all kinds of riders across the board, everybody seems to overpack anyway. So that hasn't changed much, even with all this information there. But nowadays, you can go on the internet, you can find lists for everything, and you can find out what other people have taken on their trips and what worked and what didn't work and what's good on bikes and what's not so good. Back in the day when you were doing this, Everything was much delayed. You know, if you were going to find out information, you were mailing it out and waiting for the mail to come back yeah. in. I mean, a yeah, romantic yeah. time, really, if you think about it. Yeah. Well, I, I bought the, um, you know, the Lonely Planet um, Africa on a Shoestring, which, you know, is uh, affectionately called the Bible because it's such a thick, big, heavy book. And again, I had to like, po- you know, ring up a bookshop and they posted it to me and a week later because I wasn't even in a major town. I mean, this is... Um, Jabiru in the Northern Territory, it's sort of 250 kilometres from Darwin and there's not even a bookshop in, in Jabiru. So um, everything had to be mail ordered in um, from, you know, yeah. So it was, a, it was it, it, I mean, that was a year in the planning as well. I think that, that I mean, that was a year in the planning also to get the money together um, because I just wanted to um, make sure that I, I mean, I actually travelled from um, 1993 to 97 
not so I was sort of four years away and um, and, I, and at the time I didn't know how long I'd be gone for so I wanted to kind of have you know quite a bit of funds there uh, to fall back on. When you read T- Ted Simon's book did that change how you felt about things that give you some sort of confidence that you didn't have before? Yeah, and his book, he he describes Africa. It sort of, um, you know, touches your soul, and and, and you know, it's sort of it's a, an emotional journey with his his story. And um, you know, you you f- sort of fall in love with Africa and and the people and, and sort of what he went through. Um, it's sort of, it's not so much a guidebook of where to go and what to do. Um, and as we were saying before about the list of things to take, I've actually on my website, I've got, you know, a planning to go page and on there I list all the things I talk and so many of them I've got in brackets, never used, never used. <laughs> <laughs> so let's sort of add that in, you know, because it's like, like you go through it and you think, you know, like there's so much stuff that I did, I took that I never needed to take. But I just wanted to say here as well, I was when I started this trip, about two, you know, I was always planning to go on my own. And then two months before I was um, due to go, the work colleague said, oh, he would come along with me. Um, and I thought that our, you know, common interest in travelling Africa would make us compatible travelling companions, not so. And we, you know, it was we travelled from um, Northern Territory, from Australia to Kenya, and that was about nearly five months, and it was five tension-filled months. And I'd just like to say here that, you know, if people are planning a trip and they're a bit worried about going alone, they won't be alone for long, and they're better off going alone because um, you'll have a richer experience and, you know, people will approach you. And particularly when you're a woman, if you're travelling with a, a man, the, the conversation is always directed to the man. This is sort of just what happens in developing countries. Um, so it's sort of the, a cultural thing that the conversation will be directed to the man and you're like kind of sitting in the background. That's what I found when I, I travelled with my travelling companion. But he – so Africa wasn't really for him, and um, which is probably where all the tension came from. But he left Africa from Kenya and then I travelled on my own um, for the next sort of year through Africa and that was like when this trip really began. Like as soon as I started travelling on my own, everything fell into my place, into place. And, you know, it was just amazing experience. When you hit that fork in the road where he went one way and you went another way, what did that feel like? Were you scared or relieved? I was very, very frightened and scared. I, I ended up um, start, I was in Nairobi and I stayed at um, this backyard campsite called Mama Roach's and some of your listeners might remember Mama Roach and she was an ma- amazing Polish lady and she died in um, 2000, I believe, um, and she opened up her backyard to travellers and it was just a real overlanders hangout. There was people in Land Rovers and trucks and um, motorcycle travellers. So I sort of um, hung out there for about three weeks before I moved out of Nairobi. Um, I was also I also needed to buy a lot of gear. I didn't, you know, have a tent. I didn't have a petrol stove. I, I needed tools for the bike. You know, I didn't have any tools. I needed all these sorts of things. So, um, you know, I over that time gathered all my bits together and then I got to the point where I had bought everything and it was time to move on. But, yeah, I, w- I was very very concerned and, and very worried about traveling alone. But as soon as like from the first day of on my own, I ended up um, riding out to the Masai Mara game reserve and I took a wrong turn and ended up at this um, luxury safari camp 
in the north of the park and um, I rode in on a very, very muddy road just on dark and the TT600 has only got a six-volt headlight, which is not much better than using a torch. And I got there and I said to them, look, I can't ride out of here at night because um, my bike doesn't have a headlight, it doesn't work, which was basically true. And And as I'm talking at the at the lodge and I thought, well, I can't afford to stay here. It was like 50 US a night, which is for me a week's worth of traveling. And a balloon pilot said, oh, well, I can, I can give you a room, an American balloon pilot. And I got, I was got a meal in the staff quarters and they gave me a beer and they were just, and the next day they said, oh, we could try and get you a balloon ride. Um, unfortunately all the Japanese tourists turned up, so I didn't get to go up in the balloon, but, um, you know, from that very first day on my own, everything worked out for me. And then the next day I ended up at um, Lake Naivasha and I meet this Japanese girl and it was her very first day of travelling Africa on a motorcycle alone. And, in fact, she was the only woman I met travelling on a motorcycle alone in my, the whole four years I was riding. Um, these days there's hundreds of women travelling on motorcycles on their own. And but meeting her, we both gave each other the confidence that, you know, like we're not completely mad. <laughs> you know, we there's, um, you know, somebody else doing this as well. And we spent a few days together at Lake Novasha and then she travelled, um, she was heading south um, down to South Africa and then Namibia and I was um, going north to northern Kenya and then across Uganda and Zaire. Um, and and then uh, the day after that, I got a, my first flat tire in Africa, and I practiced fix, fixing uh, a puncture uh, before my travels. But you know that was months ago, and I'd sort of kind of forgotten how to do it, and I couldn't get the tire lever between the rim and the and the tire. Um, you know, just needed that brute strength or a knack of doing it. And so as I'm struggling, and it's just on dark, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And, you know, apparently there's lions about. And out of the blue, these two Samburu warriors armed with spears and all the tribal um, regalia turn up and using brute strength, they help me lever the, the get the lever between the rim and the tyre. And as I'm patching the tube, we're chatting in broken English. And, and then while I'm packing my tools away, uh, after they help me kind of lift the bike upright, they just disappeared. Like I'm turned around and they were gone. And an hour later, I'm at a local hotel, you know, drinking a beer and eating goat meat stew. And um, but you know, an hour before, I was sort of thinking I'm going to have to camp out here at night. Like, what am I going to do? So, that, so it's like again, like everything always fell into place. And I think a lot of travellers who travel independently will relate to that. They'll all be nodding their head and remembering the different times on their own travels where help arrived at their darkest hour or people helped them, you know. And this is where um, why I called the book Ubuntu because Ubuntu means I am because we are. It's the universal bond that connects us all as one. And I came across the word in South Africa when this um, South African woman in Cape Town, you know, she said to me, oh, as you travel Africa, the African people will help you. This is Ubuntu. And I, it was just a perfect um, title for the book because that's what happened. You know, as I travelled Africa, the African people helped me. But the the friend that you started off with, he didn't obviously see it that way. He didn't have that same experience. What was his name? Um, Dan. Well, Dan in the book. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah. Dan didn't get that same feeling. You know, he obviously wasn't having a good time in Africa and left. What was the difference in the mindset? 
Um, Africa's not for everyone. You know, um, his idea of travelling Africa, I believe, was, um, you know, backpackers, hot showers, cold beers and rump steak. Now, my idea of travelling Africa was, uh, you know, a mud hut, um, orgali and getting off the beaten track and meeting the people. You know, you know, really, I just love the African culture. I just wanted to meet the people and converse with the people. And, you know, there are a number of travel books out there about Africa and, you know, I've read so many of them and there's this very strong sense of disconnect with the with the people. It's like I'm thinking, like, when did you kind of relate to the people? When did you, like, hang out with them? And and that's kind of what I did because I was travelling alone and, and, you know, with a motorcycle, you can get off the beaten track, you know, a big trail bike. And the TT600, that bike is a legend motorcycle. It was winning all the Paris-Dakar races before KTM came out. You know, it was the bike of choice for for the people riding, racing. Um, and that can go anywhere. It's a big, you know, strong, meaty bike that can climb up over hills, that can go all these little, like, down a goat track. And so I would look at a map and, and find the the sort of most smallest track road to go on rather than go on the main road. I mean, you, you could literally travel all the way through Africa on on tarmac or, or well-graded roads if you wanted to. I mean, in um, Malawi, a place called Cape Maclea uh, on, on Lake Malawi, which is another meeting point for motorcycle travellers and overlanders, and at one campsite there was 10 of us there and three of them were riding road bikes through Africa. So you don't need to have a trail bike, although a trail bike allows you that freedom, allows you to get off the beaten track and, and just, you know, turn up in a village, which is what I would do. I would, you know, travelling on my own as a woman, I was always aware of my personal safety, so I wouldn't be on the road at night or I'd very much avoid it. Also, I had a six-fold headlight, so it was dangerous. I couldn't see, see where I was going. But about four or five o'clock, I would sort of look for somewhere to stay, which would be like a little village. I'd never plan it. Something would always turn up. And, again, I just had this faith of not worrying about where I was going to stay that night because something always turned up. Something turned up the, the day before and the day before that, so I had no reason to be concerned that something wouldn't turn up the, this day. And um, I would turn up in a little village and ask the headman if I could camp, and invariably they'd want to offer me a mud hut, but, you know, mud huts are actually in the heat, don't have any ventilation. <laughs> it's much cooler to be in your tent. And I would always also make sure I had some food to offer the table or, or the campfire, um, you know, whether it's a couple of loaves of bread or some sugar and tea um, because they would want to feed me and not, you know, take any money for it. So my way would be, oh, look, I've got this bread for you, you know, take this. And particularly in isolated you know, villages that aren't close to a major town, they really see a loaf of bread. So it's a, you know, a really nice treat. You say Africa is not for everyone. What do you mean by that? Um, it, it can be really hard. You know, Africa is like one big camping trip. You know, you do a lot of camping, a lot of cooking on a campfire. And if you're not really into camping, it's probably not for you. Um, you know, it um, there'll be could be days when you you don't you go without washing because there's no showers around. It might be just, you know, washing out of a bucket. Um, you know, the, the, it can be very hot. Um, you know, the food can be very 
very bland. You know, it's basically like a porridge, a thick porridge meal, like a um, like they call it mealy meal in South Africa and ugali in Kenya and sadza in uh, Zimbabwe, you know, but it's the same thing, manioc in Zaire, which is made from ground cassava. So that's a basic diet. And then that comes with some sort of, you know, tomatoey onion, dried fish um, sauce or goat meat sort of tomato oniony sauce. And that's the basic sort of food that you really get right through through Africa. To get an idea what's in the in the book, I'm I'm interested in hearing you tell a story that's in the book, and uh, I think it's in northern Kenya where you took a, a tour and you ended up getting lost. Can you set that up for us? Yeah, well, um, from um, northern Kenya, I uh, one of my goals, like when you travel Africa, you do have certain goals and, and places you want to see, and one of mine was um, a place called Sibuloi National Park on Lake Tukana, where the first fossils of our first footprints of mankind. It's where our ancestors, where we all began, you know, where that, where we started to walk upright and become human. And to me, it was kind of very powerful and important that I go there and stand in that spot where it all happened. And uh, when I got to Leongalani uh, on the shores of Lake Takana, I was advised that I should take a guide because you know, there's um, inhospitable desert surrounding Lake Takana and the lake itself is alkaline. So the water is, it, you can drink it, but you can't really drink it for very long. So um, I took this guy, but he said to me, look, um, I can, I'll waiver my fee of 150 US dollars if we take this short detour of 50 kilometres to look for sapphires. Uh, and I thought, oh, that sounds all right. You know, I'll save 150 bucks and you know, he finds the sapphires. But, but aren't and off you we suspicious go. right away? I mean, when he says that he's going to, why would he waive his fee to show you something else? Why not just charge you more? Well, he no, he wanted to go. He wanted me to go there so he could find the sapphires. He 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 said he'd been there before and he knew where to go. And we would still be in um, Sibloy that evening because Sibloy was only about um, oh, 150 odd kilometers from Leongolani, but on a pretty pretty bad road, a very sandy track um, that some kind that, you know, not many people go in on. So sometimes the road sort of disappears. So he wants to make money from this. He's looking he, he as wants, a moneymaker. He, yeah, he was looking at me as transport to find the sapphires. And um, so anyway, off we went. But even from that very first day, it was like we were traveling on very rough, rocky country on goat tracks and, um, you know, very hot. Sorry, you guys are riding motorcycles. On the bike, yeah, he I was he was my pillion, you know, on the bike with me as a pillion. And um, so we were going, he said, oh, we'll go to this well. And we found the first well, which is basically just a little hole in the ground and muddy water at the bottom with goat droppings floating on it. And, um, and this is like you're looking at, you know, 45, 48 degrees Celsius, you know, very hot. You don't last long in that kind of temperature without any water, you know, and you go through your water very quickly. Um, that evening we got to another well we found where some um, gabra um, goat herders were watering their goats and um, one of these guys came came with us to find to lead us to the next well because he said that it was very hard to find. And um, oh, how it worked is they would – I would double each of them so far and then go back in 
and get one because it was I couldn't double both of them. And at some points they had to walk like if we were in a dry, sandy riverbed. And I'm laying down, so I had a rest in the shade, and I woke up to these voices. I'm surrounded by these bandits armed with AK-47s. And I'm like, my God, you know, what's going on here? But my guide, Sharif, he knew them, and he said, oh, no, don't worry, you know, they're friends. And and um, and then afterwards I, I sort of said to him, you know, they could have, like, knocked me on the head and taken everything because when you're travelling on a motorcycle, you know, the local people know you've got money. You've got to have money. You, you need money for fuel, food. You know, they know you're carrying something. Plus, you've got other things of value. And he, Sharif, said to them, oh, I told them that, you know, you report into the Kenyan army every afternoon and if you don't, they'll come looking for you and you're here to look for more water for their people to find places where the, the, uh, they can drill for water. So you're doing great things for the people of northern Kenya. And um, anyway, these bandits, well, they well, gave us a lot. he had to say that then to stop you from from running into problems. In other words, that, that's exactly what would happen to you if he had not set up, made up these lies. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I don't, I know, possibly, um, but he was also friends with them. So, um, Mm. you know, because people aren't bad, you know, people aren't about robbing you, really. I mean, I didn't have that problem. You think that, but that's not what happened. And, and, um, but they'd recently shot a gazelle and they gave us this big lump of gazelle meat. And I said to Sharif, no, no wonder they gave us the, the gazelle meat. Um, which kept us going for a, a few days. Well, me anyway. He wouldn't eat it because he was Muslim and it hadn't been blessed. And um, but we eventually made our way to the lake, and we'd been we basically ran out of water and ran out of food, and we were living on um, this fruit called coney uh, nuts. And you pound the outside of the the nut, and it's a fibrous, sugary material that. I mean, it's probably it's. I believe it's very highly nutritious. And what the 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 goat herders do in times of drought, which was happening at that time, it was drought conditions. They'll cut the goat's neck and to bleed it, and then mix the coney um, sort of fibre with the goat blood, and you've got you know a highly nutritious meal because you've got all your protein, you've got your vitamins, your minerals, all in this little amount of food that is provided by nature and. And Sharif said, you know, that the coney fruit was a gift from Allah to the people of the desert. And that's all we'd been living on, not the goat blood, though. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I was going to say, the way you say just yeah. they nick the goat and they mix it. I mean, you make it sound like it makes a lot of sense and it's a tasty meal and it's good for you. <laughs> it's it just, is. It's highly, yeah, highly, you know, you can survive on it. So um, so we made it to the to the lake. You know, we were, um, you know, at one point, I the afternoon before, I was about to give up, you know, we'd it felt like this was the end and he just forced me to keep walking. It was about five kilometres. We actually left the bike and we walked to the lake because we needed water. We were just very dehydrated. We got there late at night and um, got into the, into the you know, got the water and then we walked back to the to the bike and then in the morning we rode it back to the lake um, with me doubling him. Um, and anyway, as we, we got there, we were still there for the morning and um, by chance, again, a fishing boat sort of sails by in the distance. So you you guys are lost at this point. You're clearly much longer. I mean, how long were you supposed to be out for? Was it a day? We were, um, this was about, um, we're about uh, six days at this time. Yeah, about six days. And how long were you supposed to be? 
Um, a day, a day. <laughs> and I'd taken food for four days. Um, I still had plenty of fuel because we weren't covering big distances. We'd only be going, riding about 30 kilometres a day because we were still trying to get we, – we'd gone to the, where the sapphires were. We'll, we'll sort of step back. We went to where he um, supposedly had been before for looking for the sapphires, but there were no sapphires there. And I believe now that he'd heard from um, somebody that they had found sapphires in this area and he had a rough idea of where it was and that's where we were going to look for them. Um, But he had never been there before. And uh, so when we couldn't find the sapphires, I said to him, you know, we're going going to the lake. We're supposedly the Gabra guide who came with us. He was he went back to his people and he was going to bring them back to the area um, with more food because there was a lot of grazing area for their goats and it was a great area. But the area was kind of under control of another tribe called the Takana. And this is why they have they're armed with AK-47s because they have these little skirmishes all the time to um, take over each other's goat grazing land where there's more grass. So they're going to shoot each other if they find the uh, the other tribe in their area. Yeah. Yes, yes, they do. They shoot, they do, as Sharif described it, they shoot each other all the time. And this well we went, or this where the Sahif supposedly had found the sapphires, there was a small well there, which is basically, you know, a one metre hole in the dry riverbed that you dig down and the water kind of bubbles up from, you know, from the sand. And um, the day before, we were about to get to this um, this place where the sapphires were in this other well, um, Sharif and, and the Gabra guide, he said, oh, we must hide very quickly because they'd seen the footprints of Takana, a group of Takana um, tribesmen, and they said, we need to hide because if they find um, Sharif and Adup, they would kill them because Gabra and Takana were big enemies. So we, they were so frightened. They were terrified. And I'm like, oh, we need to get to the water. I'm just thirsty. I need to drink water. And they're like, no, no, we can't. We have to hide. But in the morning, I went there with uh, Adup, the Gabra guide, dressed in Sharif's clothing so he didn't look like a Gabra. And what had happened is the Takana um, herdsmen had, or bandits, had taken, had got water and left because they would have heard the motorcycle and Sharif said they probably thought it was a, a helicopter from the Kenyan army because the TT-600 has got a pretty, you know, deep thump, sound thump, thump, thump. to it. Yeah. yeah. So they probably thought, oh, this is a helicopter, and they ran away. So um, – and we stayed – we stayed at that spot for about two days waiting for the uh, Adup to come back with his Gabret um, tribesmen, and they never they never arrived. And this is when I said to Sharif, we've got to get to the lake. We've got to get to, you know, like find our way to um, Sibloy National Park because I – figured that if we got to the lake, we could walk along the edge of the lake to get to Alia Bay, which is the kind of little um, hut, really. I don't even think people live there, but occasionally they're there. And we would get help um, from if we made it there. That was my only sort of survival. Why would you leave the bike and walk? We we took the bike to the lake, but as we were – because Sharif – and all this is in the book. It's sort of about over about two chapters – but he kept saying to me, when we get to the lake, there'll be a road and we can ride along this road to Sibloy National Park. But there was no road. You know, there was, he just didn't know, he was saying that for, 
for whatever reason and there was no road to ride on and when we got to the lake then we couldn't ride along the edge of the lake because it was um lots of swampy reeds and we had to go further inland and away from the water so we filled up our water containers with this alkaline water and and then combined with drinking that water and then eating the coney fruit because we'd run out of food by now um we got terrible diarrhea so we were getting weaker and weaker as as the days went on and um, then we you know that was um another two days of doing that before we got back to the lake again because we were getting further away from it and i said to sharif we've got to get back to the lake where we can have water and um that was the night we arrived at the lake and the next day the fishermen sailed past and Sharif saying to me, you know, you've got to take all your clothes off and wave, you know, wave your red jacket. I had a red and blue bike Gore-Tex motorcycle jacket. You see fishermen, and how does he equate this to telling you you're going to have to take your clothes off? What's the mindset behind that? Um, because I look like an African from a distance. I was wearing a one-piece bathing suit, and because um, it's very harsh, and I was sort of, you know, paddling in the edge of the water, and I looked quite brown with the navy swimsuit and my arms and legs. From a distance, I looked like an African. And Sharif was saying to me, like, if they think you're an African, they won't come near the shore. They'll think that you're a, um, you know, a Gabra bandit or one of the other bandits that will that will shoot them and rob them. So they're not going to come anywhere near the shore. So the way to counteract that was to take my clothes off to see that I did look white because the rest of me was very white <laughs> and to put I put my motorcycle jacket up on a big long stick a piece of driftwood and waved it around because I was red on it and that way to try and get their attention and um I wanted him to light a fire but he was saying no we can't light a fire because then they'll think that's um bandits there because it'll be a, their fire so, you know, there was all this sort of stuff going on. Now, do you believe him at this point when he's telling you this stuff? Because oh, this guy has led you astray, something fierce here. Yeah, yeah, I know. But he did find the wells, the other sort of two wells the days before, and he did know the Gabra bandits. Like, he, he was a Somali and involved in, you know, cross-border um, sort of smuggling. <laughs> he was a, quite a dodgy character <laughs> looking back now, but I didn't really know that at the time. But this is where, as we we were, um, you know, spending that much time together chatting, he was telling me all about his, you know, cross-border smuggling forays that he would be doing and how he knew all these bandit people. Um, so anyway, we got the, the, the fishing boat landed about, oh, uh, you know, a kilometre or two kilometres away from us. They wouldn't come straight where we were because they were still unsure about who we were and what our intentions were. So when I had binoculars and I saw that they had landed further up um, and I could, in the, the heat haze, like a mirage, I could see figures milling about. I'm thinking, oh, they're, they're on the on the back, on the the uh, the beach. So I, you know, ran, I put my swimsuit back on and, and ran as fast as I could to reach them before they changed their mind and took off. And um, I ran through this swampy, reedy section near the beach and in front of me this massive crocodile kind of, you know, moves away from me and splashes through the water so the crocodile are disturbed. And Lake Takana has uh, got one of the world's biggest populations of 
Nile crocodiles. Um, there's sort of over 40,000 of these things living in the lake. So, um, you know, like I'm like thinking, my God, I nearly stepped on a five-metre crocodile. <laughs> this is the so lake I, you've been drinking from with all these crocs in yeah. it. The night before we arrived at, at the, um, the lake and I'm dying of thirst, I just jumped in the water fully clothed and because even at night it's very hot, you're in the desert. And I'm just open my mouth and I'm just gulp, 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 drinking water. And Sharif's on the beach, you know, standing, you know, just on the edge and cupping water into his hands. And he said, um, you're about to be eaten by a crocodile because there was a lot of anger between the two of us. And he didn't really care if I got eaten <laughs> by a crocodile. <laughs> and he's like, you're about to get eaten by a crocodile. And I said, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't care about crocodiles. I'm drinking water. And anyway, but that, I did actually move out of the water quite quickly when he said that because I'm, I'm about kind of, you know, up chest deep sort of thing. So, and it's night time. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I would have been crocodile food at some point if I'd stayed in there for too long. Um, but anyway, with, with the running along the beach to the to the fishermen, I eventually got to them and they were just, um, they came towards me with what looked like a gun, like an AK-47. But what they had, it was an ingeniously um, tied together pieces of driftwood and wire made to look like a gun. So what it would do, it would give buy them a bit of time if their enemies came towards them and they were armed and their enemies thought, well, you know, these guys are armed as well and we'll take it a bit easy. So it might give them to, to kind of fishermen time to get back on their boats and take off. So they were walking towards me with these um, guns made of driftwood and wire and um, then they could see I was a foreigner and they, you know, came up to me and, and I sort of explained in <laughs> hand movements and, and um, you know, my little bit of Swahili that I had picked up about the situation and they gave us some um, freshly cooked um, Nile perch Nile, um, like, yeah, Nile perch, which is like our barramundi here in Australia. And um, you know, I gorged on this fresh fish and, and they then came with their boat to where I had, uh, where Sharif was with my motorcycle with the TT and we put that on the on the boat and, and they took us across the other side of the lake and to a town and there was a tarmac road and from there a road to back to Nairobi. So... <laughs> So again, like help arrived at my darkest hour. And it was after that adventure uh, or misadventure that I questioned what I was doing in Africa. I'm thinking like, this is crazy. But as soon as I thought about leaving, I just couldn't. I just, I was loving it too much. It was like I was on this journey and this was just the start of it. And I knew, you know, I knew that I would be okay. I knew I'd be looked after. And, you know, if you can survive the desert, um, you can survive anything. And I, it gave me a lot of confidence. Um, when yeah. Sharif is telling you when you're standing there that you've got to strip off, you've got to take your clothes off to show them that you're not African, what's running through your head? Do you, do you question it at that point or you just understand what he's saying and, and realize I that is? Mm, yeah, I understood what you're saying. I, I, I mean, you know, I, yeah, it was logical. It made perfect sense. You know, you're living in Northern Kenya. There is really no law and order. They, they, you know, it's, desert um it's it's um there's no roads and people do their own thing there is no you know police around uh people have their own way of life and at that time it was the end of a very long drought so their wealth is in their goats and you know you've got to feed your goats you've got to graze them and so they would be they would war against each other 
or have these skirmishes over um, land, over goat grazing land where there was better grass. And so they would have the guns to like, you know, shoot at the other people to get them to leave um, so that they would take over. So whoever had the more guns or the more people would, um, would be the victors. So even though you're on the lake, you're lost. You couldn't find your way back. There was no turning around and following your track um, back. Yeah, I in after the the very first day, I thought, my God, what am I doing here? But we had just come through this hell track of rocks and gullies, and I'm like thinking, I can't get back through there. And then Sharif was saying, No, you know, we're nearly there. The next well, you know, it's a day. Just a next, you know, we'll be there tomorrow morning. And he kept saying this to me all the time. And then it's like, oh, and there's a road, you know, from there there's a road and we can ride to Alia Bay and Cibolo National Park and we'll be there in the afternoon and, you know, I'll um, I'll order a chicken and I'll kill it and I'll bless it and we can have, there'll be cold coke, cokes and, and you know, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, okay then, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was 28 years old. I was a little bit naive. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> Which explains the tension between the two years, of course, because this keeps falling through all the stuff and you're, you're hungry and thirsty. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like each day I was like, we're supposed to be in Cibolo National Park eating, you know, fried chicken and drinking a cold Coke. And here I am still like lost in the desert, you know, starving hungry. Did you end up and, having to pay Sharif or you give him a tip? No, no, I didn't. I didn't pay, and this is all in the book as well. The next, we arrived. We're at um, this village on the other side of the lake, and um, you know, we'd ordered. Um, uh, you know, he he'd ordered a chicken and gone and blessed it, and he got it killed and blessed it, and um, we were drinking cold beers, and he he got friendly with some other. Um, people there that um, he knew <laughs> and they were chatting away and I could hear they were talking about me because I knew a little bit of Swahili and it was about his fee, this $150. US So the next morning um, at daylight or even before daylight, I woke up and packed my bike very silently, pushed it out to the front and as I was pushing it out, all these people, Takana, were milling around me and started talking about how I was going to leave because Sharif had basically turned them all against me that I owed him money and I wasn't paying him. But they, of course, didn't know the full story. And so I just got on my bike and opened the throttle and I was out of there. And this is the great thing about having a motorcycle over, say, having a, a bicycle or just being a backpacker with, um, you know, using buses. Um, I could escape. I could get on my bike, open that throttle, and I'm down the road and off onto the next adventure, leaving it all behind me, you know. So, but if I was on a push bike, a bicycle, um, a push bike as we call them in Australia, um, I, I would be there. I'd be stuck, you know. Or if I had a backpack, I'd have to wait for the next bus or hitch a lift on a truck. So I would probably be in a situation where I'd have no choice but to pay him the money because. I'd have all this anger from the local people because they'd only heard his side of the story. Well, Heather, I think everyone's going to love this book. We're going to put a link to it in our show notes. It was great to meet you and talk to you. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. The book is called Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa, and certainly sounds like a good read by Heather Ellis. You can get the book where books are sold, of course, and we'll put a link in our show notes.
You know, it's interesting because a lot of times we talk with people on this show who've went off on a motorcycle adventure and it's changed their lives in, in many ways. But the same thing happened to Corey Hansen, the guy who started Camel ADV products. He got sick of his nine to five grind. He went on a trip of a lifetime. What he found was that he, his bike didn't have enough fuel capacity. So when he came back, he went around, tried to find manufacturers that would offer something to you know, solve his problem or even take him up on, on the suggestion of what they could do. No one would do it. So he decided to start Camel ADV products, which he did. And now he's very successful making these tanks for extending the range of our motorcycles, whether it's a, a BMW, whether it's a Honda, a KTM, a Yamaha. Go to the website, have a look at what they've got to offer. It's camel-adv.com. And some of the great things about it, roto-molding means that they're ultra-durable. Roto-molding means that it actually turns the mold around while it makes it to distribute the plastic evenly. Um, a lot of times in, in the old days of molding, you get thin spots. Well, you don't get this with roto-molding. So really durable mold, really durable tank that you're getting. There's no pumps, no priming easy to install, and it goes in space that's already there. You're not taking your tank off and put this big hulking thing on. This actually fits into space that you already have on your bike. Drop by their website, www.camel-adv.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. If you're still riding your motorcycle with your factory foot pegs, it's time to get off of them. www.imsproducts.com is the website to go to. That's IMS Products, well-known in the racing industry. They have a, a foot peg called the Core Foot Peg. Well, they got a whole lineup for us adventure motorcycle riders, but they've got this one called the Core, which is a beautiful foot peg. It was developed in conjunction with factory off-road race teams like KTM and Husqvarna, and apparently it conquered numerous races long before it even reached the public. The final product is beautiful. It's wider and longer than your factory foot peg. It's got some nice sharp teeth on it. You've, you've got to have a look at it to really appreciate what they've got here. All of IMS foot pegs come with a lifetime warranty. If you fracture it at all, they're going to replace it www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. On this segment, I'm going to give you a review, my review of Green Chili Adventure Gear's Uprising Soft Luggage Rack or Soft Luggage System in this case. So now to begin with, Green Chili was started by Ben Rainchild and Adam Owens, both of whom are riders. They make this strapping system in the U.S., they use climbing spec straps and some real hardcore buckles and hardware. The uprising luggage system basically consists of what Green Chili calls a rack, but may appear more uh, as a grid of straps sewn together with heavy-duty cam buckles. Now you take this soft rack and you place it on the back of your bike. There's four straps coming from it, two to the front and two to the back. And when I, when I first pulled out of the box, I got to tell you, there was a lot of straps there and I was kind of confused by the whole thing. I looked at it, it seemed like there was a lot going on. But as soon as I set the, the grid of the rack on the back of the bike, it all of a sudden looked really obvious, really simple. I thought, okay, this is really simple. Maybe I'm missing something. So to be honest, that was the point. I went back to the instructions. Thought, okay, no, I, I'm not missing anything. This is it. It's simple. Four straps hold the rack on. I quickly ran the front straps through the pillion peg mounts, the back ones around the plate that I have on my bike. And by adjusting the strap lengths front and back, you can sort of move the rack forward or back, depending on where you want it, where you want to mount your bags. Now, this soft rack is really a base. It's, it's a grid of attachment points that allow you to fasten basically anything to your bike. And I mean anything, I'll get to that. Particularly if you have a bike with few attachment points to begin with. Now, 
they sent me the full luggage system, their, their full luggage system, and then you can buy this separately. But the luggage system comes with a rack as well as six long straps and six cam buckles and two other attachment points with D-rings. The long straps are for attaching your bags. Now, this is the part I found really interesting because you can take these straps, the strapping system, and you can take any bags you have, dry bags from your paddling trip. You can take canvas bags. You could even take mismatched bags if you wanted anything. And you can use the straps to fasten it to your bike along with a soft rack if you need it. So it's almost like you're lacing it on. The straps are long and they they start out by looping it around one attachment point and then you've got another attachment point with some D-rings. You can slide it through there. It's quite a system and it's versatile. You can't really describe it exactly because it changes with everything. It'll change from bike to bike. You don't even need the soft rack or, the, or that grid if you have a lot of attachment points on your bike. You can still use their strapping system to put any sort of bag onto your bike. So your question may be, why do you want to use their straps in particular to attach your bags? Well, I'd say there's a few reasons. One is that these straps are very heavy duty from one end to the other. It seems that they've sort of spared no expense or effort The straps are robust, climbing-grade webbing. Uh, They've got heavy-duty cam buckles, heavy-duty D-rings. And if I'm attaching my gear to the side of my bike, I want to make sure that it's not going to drop off. It's not going to fall off if I drop it in the dirt, not just once, but repeatedly. I want a good, tough system, and this appears to be it. Also, the Green Chili strap system have tensioners built into it. So the tensioners are are sort of a, an elastic point or an elastic stretchy part that's sewn into each one of the cam buckles and the double D-ring attachment points. And what that does is that gives you that um, that stretch, that, that spring-loaded action that you get sort of with a bungee cord, but that spring-loaded action that helps keeps things tight. Now, what's unique about the way they've done it is that that section of stretchy material or elastic strapping is inside a tube of fabric, a climbing grade tube of fabric. So what happens is you can pull it down, you can sort of over tighten it, if you will, and stretch the the elastic all the way out. And what happens is then that tube that's on the outside that's sort of bagged up when you begin with becomes taut. And now you've got a full solid strap. As a matter of fact, the elastic portion of it could even break and you'll still have a solid connection. That's really important because this means you're you're sort of foolproof with this. It's It's super strong. I really like that. Now, I really think the only limit to this system is your imagination. Really, it gives you so many options of what you can fasten to your bike or how you can fasten it. It's just a matter of you just got to sit there and think, okay, well, what do I want to do and and what method do I want to use to do it? Looking at the straps, you'll really appreciate the, the quality of the straps. I mean, it's sort of undeniable as soon as you pick it up. That's the first thing that gets you is when you open up the box. For me, when I open up the box, the first thing that got me is I feel like I'm holding climbing gear. I mean, you look at the stitching quality and the, and the webbing quality, the whole bit. Even the loops for wrapping around your attachment points. So what you do is you, you basically put the loop around your bar, whatever it is, and then you run the end of the strap through that loop and then pull it tight. That's an, an attachment point. Those loops are sewn in such a way that when you do that, they lay flat. They don't bunch up and you'd have to look at it to see what I'm talking about. But it's designed like that. You don't even notice. It just makes the system work and feel better. It just feels smooth. I know some people seem to like bungee cords. 
Now, in my opinion, bungee cords are no substitute for quality straps. I, I don't even, I don't want them anywhere near my bike. First off, bungee cords can be dangerous. Now, I know you if, you, if you don't know this already, you might sort of chuckle and say, what? But there've been a lot of people who have had bungee cords snap off and catch them in the face and, and hurt them that way. I know someone personally that had a bungee cord come off when she was putting it on and hit her in the eye and her eye was badly hurt. Uh, luckily, not permanently damaged, but she had to seek medical attention, took weeks to recover from it. I and mean, it was really bad. And Basically, you're, you're winding something up and snapping it in your face if it happens to pop off. But another problem with the bungees, and I, and I think one that is more frequently dealt with, is that bungees keep stretching. They have no stopping point. So you bungee your gear on, and then as your gear bounces up and down, as the weight of the gear lifts up off your bike a little bit, they slip down a little bit, and they lift up, and then they slip down a little bit, and pretty soon, your gear is gone. Now, on top of all that, I think it's extremely difficult, at least from what I see, to find good quality bungees anyway. Bungees are really cheaply made. They have a, they have a real short stretch distance on them, and they're just poorly made. I would, In my opinion, bungees are not for motorcycles. Use them in other places. I know they're good for things, but certainly not for holding luggage on or anything on that you care about for your motorcycle. Maybe stopping something from rattling, but certainly not holding something on. So as far as my evaluation goes for the Green Chili Adventure Gear Uprising Soft Luggage System, the pros, well-made, good design, extremely versatile. I would say that's a huge one. They can be used on any bike and switch back and forth and adjusted. There's just so many things you can do with it. And the thing I love the most, they, you can fasten any bag to it. It doesn't have to be bags either. I mean, your imagination will go crazy when you look at it. And you're thinking, I can fasten anything here. The cons, I can't really think of any cons at this point. Uh, I don't think you can go wrong with, with quality, versatile gear on your bike. So I'm going to keep trying this Green Chili Uprising luggage rack and system. I'm going to try it in different configurations, hopefully on different bikes, and, uh, and really get a good feel for this as uh, the years go forward. Because I think it's something that once you buy it, you're going to have it for a long time. It's that sort of gear. As soon as you see it, you'll realize that it's, it's going to be around a while. So I give this system a huge thumbs up. Now, in our show notes, we have some photographs of the straps that I've been using. And, uh, of course, you can go by their website, greenchiliadv.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course... Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you, the listener. Thank you. Hey, if you haven't already, drop by our Facebook page. We're on Facebook, of course. Like, isn't everybody on Facebook? We're on Facebook. Drop by our Facebook page and give us a like. Send us a note. And of course, drop by our website. If you like what we're doing here, you can drop by our website, click on the donate button, and guess what? We have got a brand new sticker, a new logo, a new sticker. It's very cool. I think, like, way cooler than our old ones to stick on your bike. So drop by the website, click on the donate button, anything $10 or more is going to get you one sent back at you. Also, don't forget that we have another show called ARR Raw. You have to subscribe separately. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the Raw button to check that out. A whole bunch of things on our website. My name's Jim Martin. Now, no excuses. Time to get out there and ride your bike. If you can, if there's no snow and ice. I mean, if there's snow and ice, of course, don't ride your bike. See you next week. This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 